Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Right now, thousands of organizations and companies are debating whether and how to bring workers back into the office this fall. On the other hand, Google just announced that nearly all of its 200,000 employees and contractors will work from home until at least July 2021. So could Google's move hint at what might become the new normal? Let's talk about it with Derek Thompson. Derek writes about economics, technology, and the media for The Atlantic. He's the author of the book Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. And he hosts the podcast Crazy Genius. Derek, welcome back to Reset. Great to be back here. Thank you. Derek, let's start with uh, Google's big news. Your thoughts on that? I mean, it is huge news. It's really surprising to me, frankly. Uh, I thought that Google was basically going to announce the same thing that Facebook and Twitter and a couple other tech companies have, which is essentially, let's get through 2020 and reevaluate in 2021. Uh, A lot of those tech companies have essentially said, we look to maybe start bringing back people uh, in the next year. But Google essentially said, no, we're going to uh, commit, essentially, or at least give our workers guidance toward the fact that we're going to be working from home, working remotely, working in a distributed fashion for the next 12 months and and not come back until July of 2021, at which point you you have some people uh, who are saying that, you know, by that time, uh, there might be a vaccine. Uh, We might be closer to herd herd immunity for a variety of reasons. Um, So uh, it, it, it somewhat surprised me, but I think that the big picture here is that it goes to show that a lot of companies, a lot of prestigious companies, the sort of companies uh, that people would die to work for, are starting to recognize that remote work could be with us for the foreseeable future. Um, maybe not with us forever, uh, but they are going to be working in the next you know, 12 months at least toward revamping their own uh, corporate cultures to make remote oh. work an intrinsic part of their work DNA. This is amazing to think about that. And I, I forgot the CEO, I think it was from Siemens, that said it's less about productivity, more about outcomes. This concept that at the end of the day, it's not about how you come to an office or you, you, you collaborate in, in you know, one space together. It's about getting the job done. And it seems like if Google, Google wasn't getting their job done, they, maybe they would have a different approach to this. Right. I, th- I think that's true. I think there's a lot of companies that has, have essentially said uh, in the first few months of, of this crisis, look, we don't see any productivity fall off. In fact, we see that in a variety of ways, some workers are more productive than they were when we were in a office-based setting. There was a story recently in the Wall Street Journal that said that there was a, a kind of burst of productivity that happened early on in the pandemic as people might have been fearful for their jobs and working really hard to make sure they didn't right. lose it. And now they, uh, the, those companies are recognizing that productivity levels have sort of fallen back to normal or or below normal. I, I would frame it this way. I would say that right now there's a lot of companies, and we're talking about white-collar companies here. Obviously, there are a lot of workers, a lot of companies that don't have the yeah, option. They just don't have that re- option, right? right? Yeah, remote if you're like a restaurant or if you're a retailer, uh, a hospital, for example. But for those companies, those white-collar companies that are going remote, uh, I think they're going to deal with you know several different stages uh, of, of this transformation. There's going to be maybe you know initial excitement. Oh, wow, look, th- people can be equally 
productive working from their kitchen counters, followed by, okay, now things have come back down to normal. Maybe things aren't, you know, quite as uh, special and surprising as it initially seemed. But eventually we might be, you know, come to recognize that remote work has a lot of problems that we didn't initially see or weren't focused on in, right. in March and April of 2020. And yeah, we can, we can talk about those uh, a little bit because I think it's going to be really interesting to see how remote work culture uh, changes the kind of work culture that people have come to expect from their jobs these days. That's such a great, I mean, that's really what it's at the core of this because we could talk all day about what the employers want to do, but I would think that this has much more to do with what the employees, <laughs> how they're interacting with their homes and, and working from home and not being in an office. Derek Thompson's with staff writer at The Atlantic. Let's bring in Kevin from Schaumburg. Kevin, welcome to Reset. I'm a Gen Xer, and I used to think that, you know, working at home would be somewhat of a glorious thing. But since having done it since March, um, I have to honestly say I'm not a fan of it. However, I do believe the way that it should work is there should be a little bit of a hybrid. You know, for example, everybody hates Mondays. Mondays, you stay <laughs> home. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you come into the office. Fridays, everybody wants to kick out their weekend early. You stay home on Friday. Well, thanks for the call. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Derek. In a way, COVID-19 has just exacerbated some of the problems that we already had in our society. And work is part of it. You just heard right there, Kevin, talking about, you know, Mondays and Fridays and, and the shifting work week. That was always on the table. And it seemed like a lot of employers just were, you know, just didn't want to pull the trigger on that. Yeah, and I think it's important to disentangle a couple things here. So on the one hand, you have remote work, which means doing the same amount of work, uh, but not necessarily in an office from wherever. Then you also have the separate issue, which is less work. A lot of people saying we should move from a five-day work week, which for a lot of people is, let's be frank, a six-day or seven-day work mm -hmm. week, right. um, and making it a four-day work week where people have Mondays off or Fridays off. Um, then I guess the caller was also saying, you know, why, why stop at four? Uh, let's make it three. Let's take the Mondays <laughs> and the Fridays and lap them off. One just aspect of psychology here, I think, is that if you, uh, if you take off Monday, Tuesday just becomes Monday. The reason that you get, the, you get the, a case the Mondays isn't because it's called Monday. It's just because the weekend's ending. <laughs> so if the weekend ends on, on a Tuesday, you're going to have the case the Tuesdays. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't want that to be a, a, a glib argument against the argument for less work, which is one that I've written about and have a lot of sympathy for and I think some companies may indeed experiment with. I could, however, see remote work actually uh, leading to the opposite. Uh, not that remote work would lead to less work, but rather that remote work would lead to more work. Um, the reason being that one easy way to distinguish between your office life and your home life is to have an office and have a home and to have those things, those things separated by something called a commute. But when your kitchen counter is where you have breakfast and lunch and where you write PowerPoints and deal with Excel and work and take care of your kid uh, and feed your dog, and you know, then you can't draw that bright yep. line between work and life. And as a result, I think sometimes remote work leads not to less work, but to more work. Oh, absolutely. And Derek, you know, it brings up bigger questions, which I'm sure we'll tackle at some point in the society, just about labor and, and how it all works. I mean, we, we saw such a fight in the, in the, you know, the end of the 19th century for the, uh, the five-day work week, you know, having, a, having a couple of weekends, days off, and, and that's been part of the American tradition. And I wonder, as we get to the point where most of these companies, Google included, are going to say you can work from home, if there's going to have to be a rewrite of how we look at, at labor in this country. 
Yeah, I love the question of how can we learn from the late 19th century, because I think that in so, so many ways we're living a retread of it, whether it's income inequality or labor movements or just natural uh, uh, sort of civic unrest. Um, I, I do think, though, that, that uh, an interesting distinction between the experience of, of you know, looking at Google and the experience of the 19th century is that in the 19th century, those labor regulations, uh, which you know, led to uh, a, you know, limits on, on child work and eventual ban on child labor uh, in the 1930s, you, know, you had the shirtwaist fire uh, in New York, which uh, led to uh, even more labor regulations, five-day work weeks. That had to do with regulating based on the experience of lower-income people, of the working class. Um, with Google and Facebook and Twitter and these tech companies willing to remote work, we have essentially not a revolution of the lower class, but a revolution of the white collar. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how those white collar experiences trickle into public policy. Um, I, I think it's always really important that these sort of broad labor movements don't affect only one part of society, that it's not just a lower class or middle class movement. Uh, you know, for, for laws to be passed in this country, you need a majority of people uh, to, or majority of uh, representatives representing a majority of the people to see the broader benefits of these policies. So, you know, I, I think you're right that we are at an inflection point in work. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how the remote work experiment uh, spills over into these debates we were having earlier about how much should we work, how much should we uh, ask for time off? How much uh, should we be expected to be paid no matter how much we work? You know, thinking about stuff like a universal basic income, Absolutely. which goes to you universally, no matter uh, how much time you're, you're, you're working. So there's a lot of issues here. And I think remote work could spill over into all of them. Well, we, you know, it's funny because we want to have a, a lifestyle conversation about what it's like to work from home, but all these issues, very serious issues creep up, whether it becomes you know, the idea of, of a new labor movement or, or even the fact that uh, some of the the employers, because of the economy and the, and the, and the obvious downturn, have slashed finance. I mean, they've, they've slashed your salary. They've slashed your hours. They've, they've made you take furloughs and, and changed the way that, that you're able to provide for your family. So there, there's a lot of that, too, that goes in that, that you wonder if any of that's going to come back. If, you know, once a, 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 vac- a vaccine comes available and we all get a shot in our arm, does that mean that these companies are going to return to giving uh, the wages they were given before? Well, it's, I'm not sure. I'm an optimist. I think that this plague, this pandemic, um, will eventually be over. And when it's over, I don't think that 10, 15 years from now, you're going to be able to say, look, the economy right now is permanently pinched because of the experience uh, of uh, this health crisis from a decade ago. I think that a lot of the trends that we were seeing before uh, the pandemic will continue, um, and some of them will even be sped up. Now, the speeding up of some of those trends, like, say, the rise of e-commerce, for example, a lot of us are shopping a mm-hmm. lot more online mm-hmm. than we than we were uh, maybe uh, nine months ago. Um, that's going to have labor implications. You know, you might have fewer people employed in leisure, hospitality, and retail. Um, but overall, I, you know, I, I think that I think the economy will continue to grow. I think wages will continue to grow. Um, but I also think... Uh, that a lot of the debates that we were seeing before the pandemic um, are going to be amplified. You know, Bernie Sanders got pretty dang close to winning the Democratic nomination uh, for president. Um, you know, a couple thousand votes in South Carolina, one way or the other, uh, and and he could have been the Democratic nominee. You know, that means that before there was any talk 
in the U.S. seriously about a, a COVID crisis, uh, you almost had a socialist uh, representing the Democrats uh, in the presidential election. Who, who so ran on a lot of these issues, right? Who ran on, exactly, ran on a lot of these issues. So, you know, while, I, you know, I right now with my reporting and my analysis, I'm really laser focused on the pandemic and what it means and, you know, how it's going to be an inflection point. I also want to give a little bit of credit to all of the people who were working on the, these issues before you had a coronavirus crisis. Um, and I think that you know, a lot of their voices, especially when it comes to universal health care and maybe other welfare policies could be amplified uh, in the immediate aftermath yeah. of, uh, of the pandemic. And Derek, when we, when we talk about people who, who definitely are used to the camaraderie and the social aspect of getting together, but they recognize that you know, it's not safe to do so, so when you're working from home and, and you know, you, just like Jonathan there, you have to make the best of it, there's a psychological point of, of getting over the hump to recognize that it's just, it, it may not even be a choice. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for people in the singing community and the theater community uh, as someone who was an actor before I was a writer and have appeared in countless musicals. And it's a huge part of my life. And I, my, my heart goes out to, to that whole community. Um, on the issue of, you know, working from home and trying to cobble together a sense of community virtually through Zoom or, you know, FaceTime video, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the ways in which those kind of communities, um, you know, can be reconstructed online, but also how sometimes the reconstruction is, is subtly different. I should say different in, in both obvious and subtle ways. So obviously it's, it's uh, you know, when you're um, talking with someone who you love uh, and your relationship, which, you know, used to be, you know, like my, my grandmother, for example, who lives in Detroit, um, I can't see her right now. So, you know, typically I would go out to visit her every few months. And right now that's not an option. So that hurts in, on, on one level. On another, maybe more, more subtle level, I'm really interested in how group dynamics change when they're online. You know, you think about an office and, you know, how people deal with each other in an office or in, you know, casual weekly meetings, if you're in something like a choir, you have certain kind of conversations that are intimate, but boring. Um, you say, you know, what did you have for dinner last night? How are you doing? Uh, you know, how are your kids? Uh, online, I think sometimes we default to like more interesting things. Mm -hmm. We say like, um, you know, group conversations tend to be like you only put something in the group slack if it's really, really controversial or outrageous. And that changes the way that people interact with each other. And it changes in some ways the sort of the, the shape of the group dynamic and the way that people feel like they can be intimate with each other. So it's, it's not that I'm a, a pessimist when it comes to digital communications. I just think that we should be honest about the fact that we talk about different things online than we do in person. And those subtle differences in communication and in the substance of our conversations could change or, or shape our experience of group dynamics like office, yeah. like office culture. Derek Thompson, staff writer at The Atlantic, as we're talking about the future of work and, and working from home uh, in light of, of what Google announced uh, yesterday, saying they're, they're keeping all of their employees at home until 2021, July of 2021. Derek writes about economics, technology, and the media for The Atlantic. He's the author of the book Hitmakers, A Science of Popularity in the Age of Distractions. He hosts the podcast Crazy Genius. Derek, a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. For the latest and most accurate information on the coronavirus, head to 91.5 on your radio or WBEZ.org on your web browser. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you right back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.